Hello and welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, on the unceded homelands of the Mohican people who are known today as the Stockbridge-Munsee community. I'm Sina Bazilahickey, and today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we bring you an end-of-year special. In this episode, we will highlight Megan Marone, a Hudson Mohawk Magazine producer, poet, teacher, activist, and so much more. Megan died this year, and we would like to celebrate her life and her work at the sanctuary by replaying some of her stories. We begin by hearing from Megan Marone about her Troy Poem Project. Then she is interviewed about her work with local climate activist group Extinction Rebellion. Later on, we focus on Megan as a Hudson Mohawk Magazine producer, beginning with an episode from her series with Dr. David Borton, Equality Under the Law, Practical Physics. After that, she turns to education and speaks with a local teacher who attended and helped form the Capital Region Institute for Human Rights. After that, we end with one of Megan's poetry interviews. And in this interview, she spoke with Avery Stemple. These are just five stories about Megan Marone. She has an extensive archive on our website, mediasanctuary.org, where you can really appreciate her intelligence, passion, humor, and dedication. In this first story, Erin Pedinati interviewed Megan Marone about her Troy Poem Project. She was well known for this poetry project and for sitting at markets with her typewriter, on which she would write poems for passersby. I'm Erin Pednati, and today I'm interviewing Megan Marone, the core creative contributor to the Troy Poem Project, about the aesthetic significance of analog media in a digital age. The Poem Project is a community art endeavor that occurs on a biweekly basis in the summer months at the Troy Flea Market and intermittently at festivals and other public gatherings throughout the colder months of the year. It involves Megan sitting with an old-fashioned analog typewriter at a portable desk beside the Hudson River and writing poems on brown recycled paper about whatever topic people request. Megan, thanks for taking the time for this interview. It's nice to be talking with you. Great to be talking to you. So to start out, can you tell us a bit about the different types of poems that people have requested? Well, the first idea that anyone ever had for a poem came from a social worker And she was working with people who had been incarcerated. And she said that the people who she worked with had a great deal of feeling over what they had done and also family circumstances that had led them to make choices that they did and that they were preoccupied with guilt and anger. So she asked me to write poems about that. Over the years, I would say that people have asked me to write about friendship really specific people in their lives, which is actually kind of tough because I don't know the people who they want me to write about. But then it leads to a really great discussion about people describing the people in their lives who they love. And then we construct a poem together. So it really becomes a dialogue. But I would say some of the more interesting requests would be that people have asked me to write about ladders to other realms of consciousness, the sturgeon in the Hudson River, their relationships, their feelings of uh, hope or guilt and shame. So it's really nice because you bypass superficial dialogue with people and go straight to things that people are thinking about. 
So at one level, it seems clear that the reason you're using a typewriter to write your poems in public is the greater practicality of doing so in comparison to having to set up a printer. But at another level, this choice of medium clearly resonates with deeper issues, namely the fact that we're living through an era in which the means for producing and disseminating texts has recently shifted overwhelmingly to digital media. And this goes along with a pervasive sense that the ease and almost instantaneous speeds with which texts can be digitally copied and circulated has cheapened their value as physical artifacts in which material labor has been invested. So my question is, is your work in some ways a response to this larger technological and cultural situation? Is the fact that you're producing singular, perishable, analog copies of your poems meant to add something to their overall value as artifacts? Yeah, I'm not the first person to have the idea to sit with a typewriter and have dialogues with people about life. Many big cities have this, and... What's really nice is that the actual typed poem becomes an artifact of the moment that you had with someone. So in order to write a poem about a person or for a person who you don't really know that well, you have to talk with that person for a while. And then you learn a significant amount about them or you learn about the things that they love or that matter to them. And then once the poem's typed up, the poem becomes an actual physical memento of that conversation that you had. So yeah, I mean, it's the idea of making something that is meant to last. Analog is related to the word analogy. So analog media versus digital media has to do with the fact that analog media in general, whether you're talking about, you know, printing or making music, it's supposed to be more of a media that is analogous to the realm of the earth. There isn't an abstraction. Like if you're talking about analog music, a vinyl record is considered analog because the threads on the record really mimic sound waves and the sound waves that hug tightly to soil and earth and material reality. If you're talking about analog media in terms of a typewriter, it's a little different. There's the actual handwriting of thought The typewriter is interesting because it's a machine that processes your thought, but that machine is hammering out letters and instantaneous printing of of keys that you've depressed. So it is mechanical for sure, but it's also analog in the immediate crafting of some sort of object. Whereas the digital world is all about abstraction. I mean, the word digital is related to digit and the whole idea of things being abstracted into numerals. There are really wonderful things about writing in the digital world. Like in a Google document, it's nice to have the collaborative component where you have a whole bunch of different people working on a single document and you can actually see your revision history. So I think in terms of writing media, there is a place for the digital writing media. Does that mean that we have to keep going forward in linear time and never use a typewriter again? Obviously, I don't think so. And the typewriter also might slow you down because you have to actually think before you type about what you're typing because you don't have some of the benefits of automatic editing and things like that. And people just seem to like it. So you mentioned dialogue. 
And one of the oldest written works about media that theorizes about media for one of the first times in history is Plato's Phaedrus. And in it, Socrates expresses this concern that this relatively new technology of writing is actually fundamentally alienating because it takes people away from physical presence with each other. And he saw dialogue, the conversation of souls, people who are located in the same space with each other having a conversation as the best way to learn about people and to learn about the world. Do you think that what you're doing and what other people who are doing poem projects around the country are doing is to some extent, if not solving, at least addressing this problem, the ways that writing can be alienating by actually trying to connect to other people in dialogue when you're carrying it out? Yeah. What your question just made me think of is classically romanticized literary eras in which there were actual physical gatherings of people who had certain aesthetic preoccupations, salons or maybe even less sexy gatherings. Well, I mean, just different writers who might have been incarcerated or in really difficult situations outcast revolutionary groups that then gather at points, not to just focus on the highbrow literary salons of Paris in the 20s or something like that. So the physical gathering of people is really important and kind of exciting for sure, but also rather difficult in the way that civilization runs now with there being a lot of physical dislocation and post-industrial drift and then also the actual problem of spaces like who owns property where can you gather what are public spaces who really has control over public spaces so it's uh, always really exciting to do the poem project in gatherings where there are real efforts to make everyone feel welcome so There's the Riverfront Park in Troy where the Poem Project has happened. There's Freedom Festival at the Sanctuary. There's the Holiday Party at the Sanctuary. So it's kind of catch-as-catch-can in terms of community, but what you discover in terms of that gathering of souls, I'm going to use the Plato term of souls, is that people really have a deep need for that physical connection. Of course, you have, again, the digitized abstracted numerical quantification of your online communities, but people actually seem to want real gathering. Real physical gathering has to do with real vulnerability and also honesty about both the joy and the sorrow of your life that both exist. And there isn't so much of a digital interfacing of hiding. And I feel incredibly grateful to the people who have spoken to me with the Poem Project because, you know, it could be seen as a little bit of an odd thing. And there's just a positive response where people are curious. And as long as they get the sense that you're non-judgmental, you want to talk to them because they're another human, they're another soul in a gathered community space, then people open up. The dialogue becomes really important. And actually, I would say that the highest value that I have, and I have other friends who do this project with me, by the way, Cody Bingham, Molly Bingham, and we all walk away saying that the highest value is just the moment that you really have with the person. And then the poems become, again, the memento of that moment. Well, thanks very much for this interview, Megan. Thank you. That was Erin Pedinati interviewing Megan Marone about her Troy Poem Project. 
Megan Marone was also an activist and played an important role in the local chapter of Extinction Rebellion, an environmental movement calling for nonviolent civil disobedience in order to push for government action on climate change. Correspondent Larry Blood spoke with Megan Marone about activist responses to climate change. Can you tell us a little bit of something about what Extinction Rebellion is for those who aren't familiar with it? We have to just encourage every human to engage in nonviolent direct action. And that is what Extinction Rebellion is. So taking people from the point where they're, I'm concerned about th- this to I'm going to do something about this as soon as possible right now. I have to. Exactly. And also um, trying to appeal to an inner voice within people where you say, you know, perhaps there will be uh, appealing to the inner voice within people who basically when you hear a statistic like the Arctic is warming at twice the rate that people once thought, or you uh, see the superstorms increasing everywhere. And then in conjunction with that, you see these insane decisions like building more pipelines to carry fracked gas into neighborhoods that have already been ravaged through time and history by Uh, policies that were racist, classist, you know, completely benefiting the powerful, um, that we're not going to, the point of Extinction Rebellion is to appeal to the voice within people that is actually what you could consider the voice of reason, right? Living in a world like that is pretty insane. So as a movement, the whole point is to get rid of the denial, to be like, we do not want to engage in this denial in terms of the fact that we need immediate direct action and and that this is a crisis, to quote Greta Thunberg, the house is on fire, and to have people join together to directly communicate in any way how severe the situation is in terms of our ecological situation. Well, um, you're obviously very driven yourself and uh when did you first become involved with with extinction rebellion um well i connect i feel very lucky to have friends in troy not just the capital region but specifically troy uh hannah vanderkoek and dan dan lander both went down uh to new york city and basically dan had heard about extinction rebellion through just reading more and more about climate work. And then in November of 2018, the protests were organized by the Extinction Rebellion in London. And these particular protests shut down all five of the major bridges into London. And at that point, Dan was like, wow, these people are going to the limit. They're demanding zero emissions by uh, 2025, which Again, on the rational brain side of things, you know, I've talked to many people who are like, that's insane. It's not going to happen. We're not going to get down to zero emissions in six years. But then there's the paradox of the insanity that if we don't, we are facing sure disaster in every sense of the the word. And also that the most vulnerable communities around the world are already being the most impacted by these things. Um, 
And I'm talking about in the global community, let alone domestically, where you have people right in Troy who, you know, live along these highly polluted waterways and, you know, live in highly polluted neighborhoods where there's lead in the soil of playgrounds where children are playing. Um, but we're talking also about the real way that the superstorms are going to increase and the sea level rise is going to make life real different, real fast. So many of the forces that feed into uh, uh, climate change have al- already been feeding into society, causing problems for usually uh, the poor in places where uh, uh, corporations perhaps say, we don't really care about these people. We want to promote our pro- product. We want to put this out. We need to do this. The heck with that. Yes. Uh, and so this is an extension of what has already been going on for decades Maybe beyond even centuries, yeah, centuries. You know, maybe even uh, an extension Industrial of revolution. colonial policies. The idea of looking at indigenous people and just saying that having this very rapacious view of the land and people. Um, but Hannah and Dan came back to Troy from learning about this movement and then talked to a uh, few friends and explained what they learned at this at this um, meeting that was held. And then we went down to an action in January of this year, January 26th of 2019, and we engaged in nonviolent direct action, marching down. Uh, it, it, there was, it was pretty cognitive dissonance-inducing uh, because we mar- marched down Fifth Avenue um, demanding the Extinction Rebellion demands. So basically things have gotten too far and we, we have to act now uh, is what the organization feels, what you feel. This uh, event, which is happening on Saturday, is going to be drawing a variety of people in from a variety of backgrounds, maybe some not quite as, as shall we say, motivated as, as, uh, as others, but all concerned about the same issues. Uh, how do you expect, what, what do you expect to see come out of this? Uh, I'm excited. Well, I'm extremely excited about the panel discussion because I keep reading over the bios of the other women who I'm speaking with, and you, it's such a mixture. Like, for example, there's one woman who's working on, uh, you know, trying to do remediation through solar, I don't know, this cool method that she'll talk about, and it's a very specific, um, very technical, scientific thing. We also have a professor of anthropology speaking on how she's seeing the way cultural um, and behavioral patterns are shifting in the face of climate change up in Finland and how reindeer herders are changing their position. Um, And I know Abby Kinchy from RPI speaking on her scientific research. I'm an English teacher and adjunct professor of English education. And so I never really thought that I would have an, you know, really, uh, well, years ago, I, I was always involved in politics with things like, you know, trying to go to protests for Mumia Abu-Jamal to be released from prison and, you know, Occupy Wall Street and uh, bringing awareness to corporate issues and the way that there's just been this corporate oligarchy takeover of our country. Um But in terms of the climate issues, I've been pleasantly surprised that in different groups, especially a group like Extinction Rebellion, there's more space for people who are not necessarily explicitly, uh, you know, who don't have scientific credentials like a PhD in physics or something like that. I'm an English teacher and a big poetry person and writer. And 
uh, we through Extinction Rebellion and through a few other programs. It's a little neoliberal, but Al Gore's Climate Reality Project. Um, we really, uh, I've gotten the message that people from all walks of life are encouraged to join the climate movement. That well, this is what's needed, is for everyone to become involved in order to really work against the forces of all the people with so much money, so much power, who are moving in the opposite direction, wanting to continue in the opposite direction. And in some ways, what we, we hope is that with this panel uh, this weekend on Saturday at uh, the uh, Sanctuary for Independent Media, that uh, people will find a way to address their own concerns and perhaps uh, connect into activism. What uh, what would you hope would come directly out of the panel today uh, on Saturday? Um, I would hope that people would walk away with a sense of exactly what you just said, that all people are needed in this conversation. And even though on, from four to six on Saturday, these uh, five or six women are speaking on particular issues and experiences and related to their life's work or activism, that ultimately um, everyone is needed in this movement. If you have eyes in your head and you have a sense of intuition, we all know that the current culture that we're inhabiting is not sustainable. And I hope that uh, it's emphasized that the people who are have already been marginalized and are already the most vulnerable, um, you know, in terms of policies are going to be even more vulnerable and that our empathy and our compassion is going to be essential in banding together and uh, just using all of our skills to uh, make noise, make change and demand that at the very least, we stay human in the face of a future that we can't quite predict, but we know things are going to drastically change. Megan, uh, well, I want to encourage everyone to come down and uh, and for the panel. Again, it's this Saturday, 4 to 6 p.m. at the Sanctuary for Independent Media. More information at mediasanctuary.org. Megan, thank you very much for your time and your visit. Thank you very much, Larry. That was Larry Blood interviewing Megan Marone about her work in Extinction Rebellion. For those of you just tuning in, you're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network on WOOCLP 105.3 FM Troy, WOOGLP 92.7 FM Troy, WOOSLP 98.9 FM Schenectady, and WOOALP 106.9 FM Albany. You can also hear us streaming online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. If you like what you hear, you can support this program by telling a friend. Sharing is caring. Find today's stories and more at mediasanctuary.org. For the second half of this show, Megan Marone will switch to the other side of the microphone to be a correspondent rather than an interviewee. At Hudson Mohawk Magazine, Megan is best known for her series with Dr. David Borden called Equality Under the Law, Practical Physics. The series showcases their magical rapport. Hi, Dr. Borton. Megan, always good to talk with you. Great to talk with you and great to play this on the Solaris. Well, it was so nice to have harp music on a quiet solar boat on the uh, Hudson River. That was really special. 
Well, could you tell everyone what happened with the Solaris last weekend? So what the Solaris was doing in Waterford, what weekend was that? May 17th? The 18th, yeah. So what happened? So first, the Solaris was in Kingston, right? Right. Okay, so what happened? Well, then uh, we brought it up from Kingston to uh, Waterford. How was that sail from Kingston to Waterford? Were there any adventures or interesting moments? Well, it was the first time Solaris had been in a lock, and it went through the federal lock. And going up in a lock is more difficult than going down in a lock because of the way the water comes in. And so that was a first and an interesting adventure. And it was the maiden long voyage of that boat because this is a 75-mile trip. Before that, it had only gone, I don't know, 10, 20 miles at a time. And so this this was a real test of the boat to uh, make such a long trip. And when we got to Waterford, we had two days where we took people for rides on the canal and the Hudson River. And we actually took over 450 people for rides on the solar electric boat from Waterford. Could you repeat that number? (laughs) 450 people. People lined up to get free rides on the boat. And at the end of all of it, uh, somebody named Megan brought her harp on board and we had music on the boat. Well, I feel so lucky that I was there both days. And uh, before I forget, though, can you tell us some of the things that people said to you out of the 450 people? What were some of the comments that you heard about the boat or what were some of the questions that people asked you? Oh, um, most of the comments were that it was very quiet and very nice and that some people got seasick on boats, but uh, this one they didn't because it was so stable and cut through waves. And one woman was in a wheelchair, and she came on board and had a good time. Uh, somebody else had a birthday, and they were on the boat for the part of their birthday. People just like a quiet, smooth-riding, 100% solar-powered boat. You know, did you feel—I mean, I kept asking you this when you were captaining. I mean, did you and Harriet, your wife, just feel so— Proud. I mean, what's interesting is that I think in American culture, we're so used to bombastic triumph, you know, like things that are loud and balloons and tons of fanfare. But I mean, this was, like you said, its first long voyage from Kingston to Waterford. And it's the first Coast Guard certified solar electric passenger boat. And to have it ferrying 450 people, it's a real triumph. And yet when you would see it from a distance, because my friend and I were watching it from the one bridge, and we would just see you and Harriet go down the river towards the south, back towards the lock, you know, from up by um, the northern bridge. And it just looked quiet and graceful. And yet this was a really, really uh, triumphant moment, you know? Well, the boat was designed to do wonderful things, and it actually exceeded expectations. So that was quite nice. How did it exceed expectations, just in terms of how many people came on it, or just in terms of the way that it's been running? Uh, It's the performance, being a solar-only boat. um, How much sun is there? Well, there wasn't a whole lot of sun over the weekend, but the amount of sun was more than enough to provide the electricity that was required for the boat to run after having run all the way from Kingston in not very sunny weather. So it didn't have a lot of sun, and yet it ran beautifully. It really did. And the moment in which the harp was on board was so nice because, 
at that point, there were less people on board, too. It was great both ways when the boat was, I mean, it was quiet, smooth, graceful. But I really appreciate having had the opportunity to play the harp because it's a subtle instrument. And people would notice the difference between taking the boat along the wharf in Waterford, where there was amplified music and loudspeakers and people. And we went around the corner, and we were on the river, and all of a sudden it was quiet. And the motor wasn't making a lot of noise, and so people noticed that all of a sudden it was quiet and you could talk, and uh, it was just much more pleasant in the quiet. Definitely. It could also be a, an even sneakier boat. <laughs> Detectives and, you know, Sherlock Holmes types could use the Solaris to quietly sneak into a den of robbers or something. Well, that's a little dramatic, but yes. <laughs> Just an idea, just a fiction idea. So anyway, I speaking of navigation, though, it sounds like you have a couple of navigation stories that you wanted to discuss. Oh, well, we were talking about some people going to Canada. And when you go to Canada... Oh, I'm going to Canada this summer. Yeah, well, okay. So when you go to Canada, you don't buy gasoline by the gallon, you buy gasoline by the what? Do you know? You said liters, right? Yeah, liters. Okay. Okay, so that's the metric system. And there's a very interesting story about the conversion between metric systems and our English system, which is very old-fashioned. I had a student in my solar energy engineering class who told me at one point that they didn't need to know the conversion between pounds and kilograms. And when you're in an airplane, you buy fuel not by volume, not by gallons or liters, but you buy it by pounds and kilograms. And there's Why do you do that in the plane? Well, (laughs) the airplane worries about weight, right? You can't overload the airplane or else it won't take off or it'll have trouble landing. So the airplanes worry about the weight of people and baggage. So the fuel is weighed. Gotcha. Okay, so uh, there's a story, it's a true story, about a 767 near the beginning of when those airplanes were flying that was flying from Montreal, I believe, to Edmonton, in uh, the western part of Canada, so all the way across Canada. And to make a long story short, the weight of the fuel that was put on board was supposed to be 23,000 kilograms, and instead they put on 23,000 pounds. And a pound is about half as much as a kilogram. And so they actually got about halfway across Canada and ran out of fuel. And both engines flamed out because there was no fuel for them, And there was no fuel for the auxiliary power unit, which provides a little bit of power. Um, It's the engine usually in the tail of the plane. So this plane had no fuel. It got near um, Winnipeg, and it turned out it didn't have enough enough glide to get to Winnipeg. So here it was, a dead stick 767 coasting down, and it was going to crash in Winnipeg. But they realized that there was an old Royal Canadian Air Force base that wasn't used called Gimli, and so they directed the plane to Gimli, and the plane was finally found Gimli, but it was too high. It would have, if they had dived the plane down to get to the ground, it would have been going too fast, and so the pilot, being skilled, did a side slip and side slipped the airplane down to a low enough elevation so that it could actually land on this abandoned runway and all the passengers were safe and sound. So that's pretty exciting. True story. 
So not quite like, uh, what's the story of the man who landed in New York with the flock of geese that got into the one? Sully. So not quite like Sully. In other words, we can't really frame in that story the captain as being quite as heroic as Sully, right? Or can we? Again, it sounds like the pilot made a very graceful, intuitive elegant, life-saving move at the end, but that pilot also miscalculated gallons and liters, or gallons and kilograms, right? Well, I'm not sure that it's the pilot's fault. There are engineers and people on the ground and other people that are supposed to do that. Yeah, we don't have to condemn the pilot. Right. Um, I'm going to say that the pilot that did this with the 767 in Canada was actually more skilled than Sully. Really? Because pilots are more or less trained to do ditching, which is landing in the water. And Sully did that very, very well. He did a great job. I'm not saying he didn't, you know, fantastic flying. But this other guy was using his airplane as a glider and made a dead stick, meaning no power, landing on a solid landing strip. And so that's that's not something they trained for. And so that was pretty special. Wow. So they don't train for, what's it called again? A dead stick landing. A dead stick landing. And why do they call it that again? Well, because there's no power. You can't, you know, add a little thrust to get to the runway or you can't, you know, slow down a little bit. You really just have to glide the airplane down to the right place. So moving from framing the pilot, and that's useful, the way that you just compared him to Sully, you know, just so that we get a sense of what the two types of landings are about. But in terms of the entire story, how do you frame the entire story? Like if you're thinking about that RPI student of yours who didn't think that measurements were necessary, is this a story about the necessity of measurements or the heroism of the pilot or people, human folly, and people not thinking about things in multidimensional ways? (laughs) All the above. (laughs) D? Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's a movie about that. There's a movie about Sully, and there's a movie about this airplane that uh, landed in Gimli, and they're both very good movies. That was just one of the many, many segments of Equality Under the Law, Practical Physics, a series in which Megan Marone interviewed David Borton. And you can find more of these and hear more jokes and thoughts on climate change, solar boats, the tides, Lake uh, Erie Canal. You can find all of that at mediasanctuary.org. Megan Marone was a dedicated teacher, and in this next interview, she interviewed Kelly Weatherby, one of the teachers who formed the program Capital Region Institute for Human Rights. In this institute, teenagers from over 23 area schools learn Activism 101 with college student mentors and activists from around the world. My name's Kelly Weatherby, and I am one of the co-directors of the Capital Region Institute for Human Rights. I am also a school librarian slash teacher at Shaker High School. How do you define the Capital Region Institute on Human Rights? And could you give us a little sense of the history, you know, how it came about? Sure. First of all, Thea and I started, Thea McVaughn, the co-director and founder, started working on human rights projects and volunteer projects with students in her 10th grade English classes before any of this was even thought of. Thea then became a fellow at the Holocaust Museum 
and came back having met Drew Bider, who has a similar program in Buffalo. She came back from that and said, we got to do this. So that was five years ago, and we had no idea. Actually, it was six years ago now that she came back, and we started planning for the first one. We had no idea how we were going to do it. We didn't have any money. We had no funding. It's a completely volunteer program. But we managed to pull it off. The first year we had about 50 students, and it's um, you know grown each year. So it's been phenomenal, uh, incredibly rewarding. The students who come have gone on to do amazing work. We've had students who formed a, someone from Emma Willard, Bethlehem and Shaker got together, did a fundraiser for RISE, the immigrant center in Albany. And they did an evening where people from all different immigrant communities read poetry, provided food, did all kinds of sold crafts. And it was just an amazing night. It was a couple of thousand dollars. They raised. They did the entire thing on their own. We had another student from Shaker who heard about the poverty level at North Colony, which people don't think of as a district that has, you know, high needs. But she found out that there was, I think at that point it was 20, I think it's up to 25 now, percent uh, of our students are in poverty. So her thought was, well, you know what, if they're in poverty, they're not reading books and they're not buying books. Their parents are probably getting them books. That's a luxury. So she decided to start a fundraiser. And she was the summer of her freshman year when she came. And she reached out to teachers. She went to our superintendent. He announced it at opening day, asked teachers to bring in books. By the time she graduated, we had uh, six, she had 6,000 books that she'd put out into our community. Wow. So how did she do this? Where were they in the community? How could people access these 6,000 books? Well, she would connect with the administration and find out who was in need. And they would somehow, on a very discreet basis, be able to provide it to the children who were most in need. What was also interesting is she actually worked with our tech department, and they built bookshelves for some of the young students and families so that there would be a place for them to house their books within their homes. So That is so cool. Yeah, really cool. So that's just a couple, but there's there's been, I mean, we had a couple of students who did the uh, March for Our Lives, um, the Women's Conference this past year. So they are very inspiring. <laughs> One of the first things we did was the uh, Speak Truth to Power uh, contest that the RFK Museum does. And that was with her class. And they did research on, you know, people that they felt were really important uh, as human rights leaders and made videos about them. So, yeah, it's been great. The and I, we have done a lot of really great, fun work together. So um, I'm really lucky to work with her. So what are your future goals? You already said that this grew quite a bit. Mm -hmm. So are you, I mean, you just got done with three days of this institute, but do you have any vision of where this is going or any changes that could happen in terms of how it will proceed with the projects? Yeah, I do. I would like to see it be bigger. You know, this year was great, but we would love it to be, you know, 200 students. Um, We'd also like to have it be more than once a year. And in fact, speaking with one of our presenters today, Pete Gannon from the United Way, he said he would connect with us and find a way to help us to have the students get together on a more regular basis because it's 23 different schools. It's not like we can say, oh, let's meet after school today. It's hard. So all those things need to be figured out, but I believe it's doable because these kids just gave up three beautiful days of summer. 
to be here. So I think they would be willing to come in on a follow-up basis. To create projects on LGBTQ issues and the environment and uh, racial justice. So it's a testament to these kids that they care so much about those issues, that they want to learn the basics of activism and, yeah, devote this time to a project like this. Yeah, I I think that it's almost like this renaissance uh, time in terms of activism for teens. They are feeling empowered and doing things that we never have seen. I, I certainly, you know, I grew up, I was in high school in the 70s. So at that point, it was still sort of a little bit of a radical, hippie-ish kind of movement. I was absolutely one of those kids. But I think we went through a couple of decades where there wasn't a whole lot going on. And now they really care. And it's been even before the 2016 election, although I think that may be why we see higher numbers. But even before that, they were interested. So there's just, they're good people, these young teens. <laughs> so we're lucky to work with them. And quick note that 23 different school districts were represented within this group of teens, which is so cool because you also have kids collaborating across the capital region on these things. Two last questions. Mm-hmm. So it's big human rights anniversaries right now, the anniversary of Stonewall and the anniversary of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. So yeah. just any comments on the alignment of Stonewall the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and the Capital Region Institute on Human Rights. Yeah, it's funny because that is the framework from which we build out the entire program. And every year we look at it and say, should we include that little video about what are human rights, what is the... But we do. We put it in and we did it this year because that is the core of why students need to be active is the Declaration of Human Rights. Uh, That is our centerpiece. It's in every folder. Every student got it. The the interns did about a 20-minute presentation on it. So, yeah, we start from that point and build out. In terms of Stonewall, we were so fortunate to have Barbara Smith come and speak. Although she was not at Stonewall, her activism and her work was, you know, only a few years after that. So the LGBT presence and the the work that's done year after year with our students here at the symposium is phenomenal. Um, it's Barbara Smith is such a phenomenal representation of the Capital District. We're so lucky to have this activist um, who, as she said, really back in the 70s made this foundational statement on intersectionality, which is that you can't consider racial justice without considering class justice and gender justice and environmental justice. I mean, particularly because she was involved in queer black feminist politics through that community that she had that she's articulating this but yeah like what a gift to have her here speaking on that and that truly was just like you know just a divine intervention (laughs) you know Uh, uh, Thea happened to be here at NYSA it happened to run into her she really vetted us before she was willing to come in here and speak she was not someone who was oh yeah I'll come talk to those kids but she wanted to know who we were what we had done all that sort of which I which made us feel very proud that she was willing to come in and the students just loved her and responded so much to her 
message. So they all want to buy her books. And so. <laughs> and she was surprised. She thought she was going to be speaking to a small group of kids. And yeah. she walked into a conference hall I, with <laughs> 95 people. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So um, last question. In her talk, Barbara Smith talked about, which I thought was really useful, the difference between charity and activism. So she said, you know, the activism is more for paving the way to change the systems of oppression. The charity is what is meant to be the compensation for the oppression happening. She was talking about how there's a place for both, that you need charity and you need this direct activism. So do you have any comments on that and how you see the kids addressing that? I love that idea. I Mm -hmm. love that idea. Yeah, I think our kids do both. I think they try to address what is the current need while at the same time looking at the broader picture that needs to be changed. There are these beautiful projects that kind of synthesized the charity and the activism. Like there was an immediate call to collect products for people having their period. So there was like direct charity, like there's oppression, let's do the collection, and then a petition on how are we going to change this so that food stamps will cover menstrual products and um, also to be inclusive of a wide range of gender representations and and people who need these products. Mm -hmm. Well, do you have any final words, Kelly? Thank you so much for talking about this. Do you have any final comments? I'm grateful for the opportunity to talk with you, Megan, and I think we we had a great three days here and I'm feeling so good. (laughs) Being with these young people has just energized me. That was Megan Marone interviewing Kelly Weatherby at the Capital Region Institute for Human Rights. Megan Marone was a poet and liked to interview other poets. We end this episode with her interview with local poet and educator Avery Stemple, who these days is perhaps better known for his work at Collard City Mushrooms. Megan asked Avery about his work as a psycho-spiritual philosopher-poet. Well, tonight, we are lucky enough to be joined in the studio by Avery Stemple. Avery is a psycho-spiritual philosopher-poet from right here in Troy, and Avery has been turning everyday experience, cosmic insight, and philosophic questioning into lyrical portraits and sharing them with whoever will listen. And I'm certainly grateful for that process of sharing. Avery does poetry workshops in elementary schools, middle schools, <coughs> excuse me, and public libraries. Welcome to the studio, Avery. Thanks, Megan. Uh, Avery, um, can you describe your life as a poet a little bit? When did your life as a poet begin? Uh, well, I mean, I remember writing the first thing that I really got excited about in like fourth grade. My teacher, Mr. Shannon, was a fantastic teacher. Um, but I would say poetry for me really opened up when I hit ninth grade. I had a, a great teacher, Mr. Speck, and, you know, he just... I, I can't say that it, like the floodgates opened at that point, but I remember finding a journal that I had in ninth grade, and it really was filled with poetry. None that I would say was great by any means, um, <clears throat> but it you know was going through life and trying to cope with various situations that really you know got me into internalizing and figuring things out through poetry. And you've carried that love of poetry with you into adulthood. I have, yeah, yeah. Cool. 
Um, can you talk a little bit about uh, some of the poets who have inspired you over the years? Sure, yeah. I mean, Jacqueline Kirkpatrick, uh, Samson Dykeman, Dan Wilcox, Amani Alagbala, um, D. Collin. I mean, I, I go to a lot of open mics and, you know, hearing people perform their poetry live is just fantastic, you know, and, and it, that really gives me a lot of inspiration. Adam Tedesco is another one. He's absolutely mind-blowing. Um, you know, I really like the beats. Um Gregory Corso, Allen Ginsberg, uh, but you know, Dr. Seuss, fantastic. Um, can you talk a little bit about your writing process? Um, how do you begin writing a poetry, a poem? Well, I mean, it's about encountering life. You know, when you get into a situation that you really are having trouble coping with or having trouble wrapping your head around. For me, I start writing things down. And, you know, it's usually after I look at whatever it was I've created that, go, you know, I get insight into how to deal with the situation that I'm that I'm in. Um, so it is a very personal thing, you know, and, and I would say my poetry really ultimately is for me, you know, I and some other people vibe with it. And yeah. Uh, so I was lucky enough to hear your performance at the Troy Poetry Mission at O'Brien's a few months ago. Um, and that was just a pretty spectacular night in general with uh, Dee Collin. And tell me again, Shannon's last name. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. She's yeah. also fantastic. Yeah. And um, so, you know, out of the poets there, there was, uh, well... I shouldn't say that there wasn't a spiritual bent to anybody else, but there is a more explicitly spiritual bent to your poetry. Um, so can you describe how your spiritual life and interests overlap with your poetic work? And do you see yourself in tradition with other spiritually focused poets? Uh, I, I would say it doesn't really overlap. It is, is intertwined. It's it's one and the same. You know, I, I, I grew up on a sawmill and, you know, I kind of experienced nature very raw, you know, and, and I, you know, I have a lot of poetry about approaching nature and the things around us, our environment. And I think whenever you walk that threshold, you are inherently spiritual. I mean, if you're listening to the birds and you're looking at the trees and, you know, it, it there's, there's mystery and magic all around us. And that's just, you know, I approach that. And there's also definitely an emphasis on helping others in your work. You seem to want to lend a hand to people. And one of your poems actually instructs people on how to behave um, how to smile, and how to forge connections. So can you elaborate on why this aspect of your poetry has emerged? Sure. Well, like I said, my poetry ultimately is me trying to cope with my situations. And so when you hear, you know, me saying, oh, you should do something, it's really, I'm talking about myself. You know, I, you know, you don't go through life without making eye contact, then you're not going to be very successful. If you don't, you know, actually reach out to people, you're not going to get your things done. We, we need, we are social animals and we need to form communities to, to help each other grow. Uh, can you read us some of your work? Sure. Um, <clears throat> let's see. This is, what do you choose? We all make choices. 
You can choose to ride the turbulence. You can choose to float the pond. You can choose to tow the line or choose to step beyond. You can choose to rise above it or wallow in the muck. You can choose to move on down that road or choose to think you're stuck. You can choose to lift your heart up. You can choose to take a stand. You can choose to laugh at midnight. You can choose to understand. You can choose to make a smile. You can choose to dance all night. You can choose to grab a partner's hand and hold on really tight. You can choose any direction. You can choose who you want to be. You can choose to let it go. Now choose responsibly. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that with us. Uh, um, <clears throat> Avery, how can we find more of your poetry? Uh, I did. I just started a, a reverb nation. I think I actually started it a year ago and never posted anything. And it sent me like a, a reminder email that was like, hey, no one's listened to your stuff. And then I was like, oh, yeah, I forgot about this. And so I actually uploaded a few poems. Um, I have uh, several on, you know, Facebook, basically, that I post. Um, I publish a lot of little chat books, and I sell them when I do readings. Um, Yeah, I don't have much of a digital presence yet, but that's something I've vowed to to work towards this year. Um, And then uh, how about performance? I mean, just given the social and emotional element of your work, it seems like it really lends itself to live performance. Do you have plans to take your work to the streets more? Uh, Well, I mean, I am always performing. I, you know, people request poems sometimes at different things um, because they've heard me at various venues. Um, But yeah, I I mean, there's Albany, Troy uh, has such a, 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 a wide variety of poetry, uh, open mics and features and things. And, you know, the, um, Albany poets, uh, Mary Panza, Tom job. I mean, they're, they're doing a fantastic job of, of collaborating all of the various poetry experiences you can get from Saratoga down to Woodstock. So it's, I mean, it's, it's a, we live in a very fortunate area for, for poetry. Do you have any interesting stories of how, your audience has reacted to your poems, people who have come back to you and said this particular moment when you read this or performed this had a certain impact, or I read something in your chat book and it had a particular impact. Oh, yeah, sure. Uh, I performed a couple times down at Alex Gray's uh, Chapel of Sacred Mirrors, and I did a whole like 10-minute kind of breathing thing where I, I talked about breathing, and then I had a breathing meditation poem. And I had a lot of people come up to me afterwards and actually ask me for copies of the poem because they wanted to use it either, you know, for themselves or for their kids to as a way to, like, you know, help meditate or, you know... Um, I I have that smile piece that you mentioned before. I, I mean, people... I, I like that one. People do respond well to that. Um, and, you know, it just lightens the room you can you can see it in the room uh, when people start to smile it's it's pretty funny i like to perform that (laughs) is is that one that you've used with kids it seems like that would be a natural choice for the work that you do going into classrooms and spreading lessons yeah and i i have a couple that are very rhymy kind of rappy and i did a, a a program in uh schenectady elementary school and you know the teachers were introducing poetry and here's this poet and i get up and do this very rhymy piece and they were like oh my god you just rapped. Did you know you were rapping? I'm like, well, it's a poem. I didn't have any beats. Yeah. And, and then so they, they really, I got a, an email from the teacher saying, you know, like, wow, you really blew their minds. They didn't realize that poetry could be, you know, represented in so many different ways. So that was, that was a pretty cool. 
That's cool. I, as a teacher, I used to get free tickets to go see uh, the Dodge Poetry Festival down oh. by in Newark. And I think it was Yusuf Kuminyaka, and he was talking about how the sixth sense comes out in poetry, which is rhythm. So it mm-hmm. so- sounds like you play with rhythm and, yeah. and rhyme mm-hmm. uh, to draw a connection between the poem, the person, and the audience, or yeah. you, you as the writer in the right, audience. Right, right, right. Yeah. Can you read us... Another work? Uh, how? Sure. How much time do we have? Uh, <laughs> we have a couple minutes left. Um, <clears throat> so this one's untitled. These are I, a lot of the pieces that I, because I chose shorter pieces to share, are kind of um, just reflections. So this is, listen to the trees whisper, listen to the river sing, listen to the birds call back and forth as they launch in the air and take wing, listen to the groundhog shuffle, listen to the daisy bloom. There's so much in this life for you to experience if you only make the room. That was really cool to hear, especially after you talking about nature and your relationship to nature, you know, undeveloped spaces. All right, I got one last one. So this is Finding the Groove. Do you think that the development of an individual consciousness occurs within a vacuum? Do you think you can grow without inspiring others to evolve? When the glow within you begins to brighten, you make others want to shine. When the music within you begins to pour out, the world around you sings. When the joy within you bubbles out and merry giggles, the rocks themselves laugh. Shine, sing, laugh, dance. Move to the rhythms you feel echoed in your steps. Move to the melodies you hear blown on the wind. Move to the songs that trickle with every creak and know that we're all dancing along. Thank you. Um, I think one last thing. Uh, Avery, do you have any words of advice for aspiring poets out there? Right. Yeah. Just uh, you know, if you see something and it inspires you, make sure you, you, you get it out. Because the more you actually write and experiment with where words go and how they fit together, the more it makes sense. Do you have a strong consideration of your audience? You said that you write mostly for yourself. So is it a two-part process where you kind of are solipsistic and you go into your own space and just write about the things that you care about? And then there's some sort of editing process where something that you present as performance or publication or a gift for the audience. Right, right. Sometimes. I mean, it depends. Like the two of the ones that I shared aren't edited at all. It's just that's how it flowed out. And that's, you know, I didn't need any change. Obviously, some I have to like perform. Like when I was doing slam poetry, you have to keep it within a certain, you know, time uh, constraint. And so you had to get it under three minutes. So I, you know, sometimes you have these restrictions that you... I've stopped doing that, though, because I'm like, you know what? I don't, I don't want to fit into guidelines. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Can you give our audience a heads up on when you are performing live again? Oh, geez. Uh, yeah. Um, I don't know right now. Yeah, soon. Hopefully the next Tri Poetry Mission. Oh, yeah, That's yeah. coming up end of January. Of, yeah, the end of January. Yeah, That's right. On a fun. Wednesday. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Try, uh, also, Troy Kitchen. Troy Kitchen on Mondays. Yep. Nice. That's always fantastic. Yeah, if you haven't been to Troy Kitchen, get there. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for being with us. Anywhere else we can find your poetry before you go? Um, No, not that I can think of. Find me on the street. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Avery. I hope you come back. Thank you. Mm -hmm. That was Megan Marone speaking with Avery Stemple. And that's our show. 
This episode of Hudson Mohawk Magazine is dedicated to Megan Marone, who left an enormous mark on HMM, the sanctuary, and our larger community. You can listen to more of her work at mediasanctuary.org. There you can also hear a compilation of community tributes to her life. Megan Marone is missed, but her work lives on. This has been Sina Bazila Hickey for Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Until next time.